So today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 and verse 13. You can also follow along on page 8 in your bulletins. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he, commended, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. This is the word of God. <clears throat> before, we, uh, before we begin, uh, I wanted to just uh, have, I have one more announcement. And um, it's... Regarding uh, our Lent season that's rapidly approaching, and we have, um, we have some opportunities for you to serve, uh, and really uh, another, just another opportunity for you to connect with people in our church and people in the greater part of the city. Um, we have annually what we call the Easter Outreach Program, and uh, it's a partnership of 50 churches that are uh, coming together, uh, different denominations, different parts of the city, and we're, uh, last year, we, we delivered 4,500 meals uh, throughout the Philadelphia area, 250 meals in the East Falls area alone. In fact, if you take Roxborough, Maniunk, and East Falls, uh, people who had registered for a free meal, um, most of them came from East Falls. So this area, and, and as a result, our church is now taking the leadership of those three, the three, the tri-county, uh, uh, sorry, the tri-township area of this part of Philadelphia, um, we will be doing a lot of the distribution and packing and coordination and leadership efforts to distribute, hopefully, I- I'd love to double that number uh, this year, but you know, realistically speaking, we-, we know that we have at least 200 to 250 uh, meals to be able to be delivered. We've got ham and chicken and, and lots of uh, imperishables that, can- that we'll be packing in a box. You will have the opportunity to deliver them um, the day before Easter, in between Good Friday and Easter, Uh, and uh, it's just an opportunity for us to serve. We are not delivering just to Christians. Uh, We believe that the gospel is for the whole of the city, and it's a way of practically demonstrating God's grace to those who know Jesus, to those who don't know Jesus. It's really for anyone who is in need. 
And we'll be coordinating those efforts here. Um, uh, we, have a, we have one person here who will be leading and spearheading and coordinating all the efforts. We need dispatchers, deliverers, distributors, packers. People are going to go and pick up the food uh, in, a, in a van and, and deliver them to, uh, from the central depot uh, down in, in the south part of Philadelphia, um, southern part of Philadelphia. Um, we are going to be partnered with uh, at least three other churches. Uh, they'll be sending and contributing people to help us. It's a great partnership. If you are interested, we will have sign-ups soon um, for various roles, uh, because, and we need many. Um, but particularly on the day before uh, Easter uh, and the, sometime during that week, the week of the Passion Week, just to pack the food. It, there's probably going to be a, over 150 people in this, in this church doing various activities, making sure that we're ready to go. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, you can, you can help in two ways right now. One, pray it through. Um, just pray through the, the, your participation and contribution uh, in your efforts uh, during that week of Easter, uh, how you'd like to participate. The second part of it is uh, this week, there'll be several opportunities for us to donate funds. If you go to easteroutreach.org, that's a pretty easy um, uh, website to remember, but you have these cards uh, in all of your bulletins. Um, easteroutreach.org, there's an opportunity for you to donate funds. It doesn't go to Metro. It goes directly. 100% of the funds goes to this effort, um, we're hoping to raise $100,000 total w- among the 50 churches that are partnered to be able to fund, purchase the meals, and to be able to uh, enter some administration costs because of the website, maintenance of the website, and things like that. We will have a number, a, vo- a, uh, a voice number or a voicemail number just dedicated to this area for people to call in, give us their address. We take it down, we have dispatchers, and we're taking that information down, entering into a database. That week of Easter, we'll be printing those emails, uh, those, uh, those addresses out and get ready to distribute among the people who will be delivering the food. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a complicated uh, process, but there's a lot involved. The other part of the funds will be used to improve the irrigation and water uh, out in the nation of Sudan. Last year, we uh, helped to build, actually we were responsible for the building of a ton of wells in the South Sudan area. This year we're going to try to uh, improve the filtration process of those wells. And I, look, I think we're looking to buy uh, and install 1,500 water filters uh, in the South Sudan area so that they would have clean, fresh water. Water is basic, and that's, what we're, uh, that's the name of the program that, we're, that we've developed uh, as a partnership. And so not only will you be able to contribute at a local level, right here in East Falls, and it's an opportunity for you to connect with people directly, and we'll be following up with those people, no strings attached. They're not required to come to our church. On the other hand, there's a global effort there. We're asking you to take part in that, participate in that. It's a wonderful opportunity, the least we can do uh, as a church in the city. Now we're going to go into the text. Um, The book of Hebrews acts as a New Testament, it's in the New Testament, a commentary of the Old Testament. It's one of those books that teaches us how to understand the Old Testament better just through the Bible. By reading Hebrews, you have a better understanding of the Old Testament because there's so much, there are only references to the Old Testament. That means right in the New Testament, you have someone teaching us how to understand the Old Testament, how to read it, how to reflect on it, how to apply it. And it was intended, it was written, its primary intent was written to people who were suffering tremendous hardship. 
And so you're not just reading it just to understand the Old Testament. In the context of suffering, these people were pressured to really go back to their old ways. And the author of the Hebrews is writing this to encourage them, to strengthen them, to to spur them in some ways, to say, don't turn back. Don't shrink back. He literally says that. Don't shrink back. And uh, he uses the entire Old Testament. It's a wonderful discourse, a wonderful letter to encourage them, in conclusion, why we need to hold fast to the love of Christ. It's, it's, it's pastoral counseling. That's what it is, in a nutshell. Uh, in what it takes to face the difficulties of life, how to get through them. And what he says here, we're getting towards the end of this book, he says, it's by faith. What is faith? And this passage helps us by conveying four different aspects of faith, a faith that lasts, a faith that helps us persevere through hardship in our lives. Faith is four things. One, faith is thinking. Two, faith is obeying. Three, faith is quaking, shaking. Four, faith is looking. Faith is thinking, obeying, quaking, looking. First, faith is thinking. Now, faith is what? Verses one to three. He says this, The author says, it's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The word certain, that word certainty in Greek, it's a Greek word that means to validate. It means to to affirm, but through evidence, which which is why the idea of faith being a leap, being a, a blind thing, being a leap of faith, it's really the opposite of what we say when we say that. Faith is not living in line with what you don't know. Faith, rather is living in line with what you know. It's being certain. It's living in line with what you know. Faith is being sure. Faith is certainty. That word, evidence. Uh, If you were to read it again, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain. Evidence. Because of evidence that you do not see. It's being certain of what you do not see. Verse 3 says, by faith we understand. That means by faith... We think. By faith, we reason. In other words, faith is a certainty that comes through thinking, through reasoning, understanding. That means that we have to think about this. But what do you understand? By faith, we understand that the visible world, that the material world by itself doesn't make sense. There must be a supernatural reality that you do not see, a reality beneath the reality that you do not see. And, and, and you see this, you know that there's evidence. You have absolute evidence that makes you certain. Now, how do you do that? For example, how do you discern between good and evil? How do you judge whether there's a lot that's being said right now? If you get on Facebook, if you look at the news, there's so much being said on so many different lines. Just in our country alone, there's so much being said uh, and we have people taking a hard line saying, this is wrong, this is evil. How do you know that? How can you take a stand on that? How do you know that something, that this type of violence is wrong, that racial uh, opposition, racial oppression is wrong, that prejudice is wrong? How do you know that certain types of murder, all types of murder, is wrong? How do you know that rape is evil, rape is wrong? Because if, if you think about this, if the visible world is, is all there is, Even the brightest minds in our country can't agree on how to solve the problems of our country, the problems of our nation. 
And we've seen history go terribly wrong. We've seen history go terribly wrong with the brightest minds in the world in history. We've seen some of the brightest, most capable people, the most gifted people commit tremendous moral errors that have had historically disastrous consequences. That's what we've seen. You have Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a British journalist, a very famous British journalist. Later on in his years, he became a Christian. And this is what he writes in one of his most famous speeches. This is what he writes. In one lifetime... I have seen my fellow countrymen, he was British, I've seen my fellow countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world. The great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song that God who's made the mighty will make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin his own assumption of power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world world, as a wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ashoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America, wealthier and in terms of weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone. Gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep her motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime. All in one lifetime. All gone. Gone with the wind. You think culture, the cultural elite, you think they have it right? You think the military elite gets it right? You think the educational elite or the political elite, they get it right? Did you know that as Nazi Germany committed the most deplorable acts of violence, you know what they were, they were doing this while they were crawling through the, the, through the, to the music of Wagner and reading Nietzsche? Do you know that? But here's the problem. If the visible world is all there is, on what basis can you say that that is evil? If the visible world is all there is, any violence you experience, any betrayal you experience in your life, it's really just a feeling. It's really just a feeling, something that's a result of chemistry, something that's a result of physiology or biology, just as much as any feeling against violence, any feeling against racial prejudice. If the visible world is all there is, then we're all here by accident. And, and that means that there really is no meaning, there really is no purpose. And if that's the case, then it's impossible to judge any action, any thought as good or evil. And if that's true, then what is moral conviction? What is moral conviction at all but a feeling, a constraint, a moral seatbelt in our lives? Now, we know, we have this, we know that there has to be more. We know that, uh, that there's this inherent certainty that oppression is evil, that it's wrong for, uh, to oppress other people. 
We know inherently that some things are good and some things are evil. We know that. For example, when you tell somebody, I love you, when you tell somebody that you love them, is that really meaningless? Or is it really just a, a consequence, of, consequence of appropriate amounts of chemicals and hormones acting in your body? Is your love for certain music, certain books, literature, certain movies, I'm a huge movie buff, is it just an accidental pattern, a collision of atoms and, and, uh, and neurons? Because if that's so, the very things that give you pleasure, they're not really real. You can't say that they're real. There's no way that you can convince another person that those feelings are real. You see that? If the world is all there is, there's no meaning, there's no explanation for pleasure that doesn't destroy the very meaning, the value of those things in themselves. Do you see that? But the moment you say there is a right, the moment you take a stance on something as moral, the moment you say that there is a right, there is a wrong, the moment you say that there is such a thing as love, you're accepting that the visible world is not all that there is. And what you're doing is you're deducing. You're taking something that is really invisible, that you don't see, and you're taking a certain position on that. You're saying there is certainty. I may not know much, but I know that that is wrong. You're deducing. You're reasoning. Faith is making sense out of all that you see in the world, all of its brokenness, all of its problems, and you're saying that there is a certainty about the reality that you see, about the experiences that you have, and it begins with reasoning. It begins with thinking. Faith is thinking. Faith is reasoning. The second thing is we say faith is obeying. In verses 4 to 8, you see, uh, by faith Noah warned about things not yet seen. In holy fear he built an ark. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, it says, though he did not know where he was going. So it starts with Abel, goes into Enoch, goes into Noah, and then progresses into Abraham. And we spend a lot of time in chapter 11 on Abraham. We tend to think that faith, it means that you, you don't ask questions. If you, if you have faith, there are no questions. But that's really not how the Bible sees it. Because, and the reason we know this is that, he, look at Abraham. Abraham, he's from Ur of the Chaldees. And we know that that area was a very fertile area. And he came from a very prominent family in that area. And that means that because he comes from a prominent family and, he's, and it's a very fertile land and he's a resourceful man, a very resourceful individual, he's got safety and he's got security and he's grown very wealthy. And because he's from a prominent family, he's got a tremendous status. But something comes into Abraham's life and it disturbs him. And what happens? He leaves. He leaves, his, he leaves Ur of the Chaldees. He leaves, he leaves his people. He leaves his culture. And this is not today. Today, everybody is in a transitionary state. Everybody is moving around. Everybody's leaving their home. It's not like this. Thomas Cahill, famous scholar, wrote a, a, a series of New York Times bestsellers. And what he says is, as, as a writer and as a scholar, he says that what Abraham did was unthinkable in his day. Unthinkable. It, it, to everybody, to leave your culture, to leave your region alone in that era... There was no such thing as internet. There was no such thing as telephones. There was no such thing as letters, for that matter. To leave your area, to leave your region and your people was unthinkable. It meant certain death, he says. Leave your culture, unthinkable. Leave your context, unthinkable. It was all you had. You don't think that Abraham had questions? He had a tremendous amount of questions. In fact, he asks them in the Bible. 
You had lots of questions. See, we all tend, we all tend to go with the flow. Because we tend to, you know, we go with the flow because we tend to rely. We tend to hit, hook on what is visible in our lives. You know, my goal uh, ever since I was in high school was to go to college, then go to grad school, get a good job, uh, start a career, make lots of money, buy a home, have a comfortable family life. I actually grew up in the Philadelphia area. Uh, I went to Plymouth White Marsh High School. I wanted to go back to that area, buy a house. It's all I knew back then. And that's what I wanted. Uh, I wanted to serve the church, you know, take some seminary classes. I felt like I was spiritually inclined to take some classes. The last thing I ever wanted to do was to go into ministry. And then there was a call. There was a burden. You know, why are you here? Many of you are here. All of you are here. Because there was some sort of call. There was a burden. Whether it was earlier in your life, where that, when that call came, maybe that call, you're reasoning that out now. But at some point, you're, you came here because it was a conscious decision. There was a call. There is a burden. And regardless, at some point, that call becomes personal. Right? You may be in that place where you're just kind of rationalizing, you're reasoning it out. But at some point, that call becomes personal. Or it's becoming personal in your life. Faith is a personal thing. Faith is a personal encounter with God. It's a call. The call comes into Noah's life. The call comes into Abraham's life. It became personal. God's saying, essentially, if you look at the Bible, if you look at Genesis and you read through Genesis, essentially God says, I want you. I want you. And when he says that, it makes you question everything in your life. What am I living for? There's a disturbance in your life. Why am I making money? What is, what is the end of all of this? Why am I pursuing this person that I'm pursuing relationally? All of a sudden, the visible things in your life, the vi- it, the, you can't make sense out of what is visible. You can't make sense out of the visible things in your life doesn't help to explain everything anymore. In fact, you know, before you used to question God, now you start to question everything else but God in your life. And, and as a result, the direction of your life starts to change. You see, we can have a rational view of God. You can have a a thoughtful, reasonable view of God. But until God becomes personal in your life, it will not change your life. You know, as a pastor, a lot of people come to me and they say, you know, I I believe. I absolutely believe. But my life isn't changing. Why is that? And really, what I want to say is this. It's because you may believe, and just believing, just having a rational view of God, it's not going to change your life. It's not going to give you joy. It's not going to give you peace. It's not going to give you hope. It's not going to give you love. Because you may still be relying, even though you believe rationally, reasonably, even though you may have reasoned that God exists, God is there, God may be all-powerful, you may still be relying on something else, else as much more personal in your life. And the Bible says until he becomes personal in your life, he will only be an influence in your life. He will never be king. He will never be God, capital G. There has to be a call. There has to be a sense that God is saying, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. You know what that means? It means either uh, there is no God, and as a result, everything is meaningless, or there is a God. And if there is a God then nothing is more important than my relationship with him. You're compelled. It's either God is just a mere influencer in my life 
or Jesus Christ is just a mere influence in my life, a supplement to my life, an improver in my life, and I go to him just to improve my life, or Jesus Christ is God, Jesus Christ is king, he gave himself for me, he is a king who sacrificed himself for me, and that means as a result there's nothing more important in my life than to know him, to be related to him, to have a relationship with him. No matter what it is. And, you know, before you question God, now you're questioning everything else in your life. And it's not always dramatic. Sometimes it's a process. But there's always some sort of definitive reality. At some point, you know. It leads to certainty. It's real. And when that happens, when there's a call, you follow. You answer. You obey. So faith is thinking. Faith is obeying. Noah obeyed. Abraham obeyed. Abel obeyed. Enoch clearly was walking with God. He obeyed. Uh, the third point is, then there's a, there's a quaking. There's a quaking in obedience. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Look at that. He obeyed and went. He had a certainty that he must go. He had a certainty that he must obey. But did he know where he was going? He didn't. In other words, Abraham, his life, was like, his life easier because of the call? It was harder because of the call. There was suffering because of the call. Life is filled with uncertainties. First of all, friends, life is filled with uncertainties, period. Whether you obey or not, whether you follow or not, whether you believe or not, life is filled with uncertainties. Do you know What's going to happen to your life in the next five minutes? You don't. You don't. No one does. Are you omniscient? No. And even if you did know, are you omnipotent? Can you stop it? Can you change it? No. Life is filled with uncertainties, filled with questions, filled with suffering. And that's going to shake you to the core. It's going to quake you to the core. God says to Abraham, I want you to leave. Abraham says, leave? Go where? God says, I want you to trust me. Finally, he gets to this place, and it's a wilderness. It's nothing like Ur the Chaldees. Canaan was a barren land in many ways. God says, this is the place. I want you to settle down here. Abraham looks around, and he says, settle down here? When and, and for how long? God says, I want you to trust me. Just stay. God says, I want you to wait. You have no children? I want you to wait. You're going to have a son. Abraham says, you want me to wait? How long? How? My wife is old. My I am too old. God says, trust me. Just wait. Uh, Abraham has a son. God says, I want you to offer up your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. Abraham is shaking. Abram is quaking. Parents, you would understand. Even if you're not a parent, you would understand. Abram says, why? That's what he's thinking. If you read Genesis chapter 22, there is such a heaviness in that long journey that he takes where he offers up his son. Can you imagine knowing that you have to offer up your son and it's a three days journey to do it? There is a quaking. There is a shaking. Why? God says, trust me. Just do it. You know, in the Old Testament, after David, one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament, after he was anointed to become king, 
the Bible says immediately after he was anointed, the Holy Spirit uh, came into him, rushed into him, came upon David. Was his life easy after that? Was his life happy after that? Do you know that from that, that was, that's, second, that's 1 Samuel chapter 16. Actually, chapter 15, right? I'm sorry, chapter 16. The next chapter over, he fights Goliath. And after that, he's hiding in caves. He's running from the king. He's engaged in a civil war. He is just suffering. Later on, he is caught in sin. He loses four children, caught in sin and broken and engaged in another civil war in his life. He is betrayed by his own son. Do you see, is life easy after the call? Is life happy after the call? Life is suffering from that moment on. In verses 9 to 10, Abraham learns that the world has no foundations. He says that he's looking for a city with foundations. He left all that he thought when he was in Ur. This is a foundation. Family, wealth, status, that's all you had in the ancient times. Children, he finally had it. No foundations. He couldn't rely on anything that he owned. He couldn't rely on anything that he received. Even his own son, he couldn't rely. God was teaching. God was, every time he had something that he could rely on, God was breaking it, shaking him to the core, to his foundations. The world had no foundations. He, it says he was looking for a city with foundations. What, is he, what are we saying here? This world, no foundations. You know, so, scientists and scholars, they already know that. They'll tell you that. Newton's second law. I mean, this is, not a, this is not a new theory. This is not a new law. Newton's second law was, is age old. The world is unraveling, friends. The world is a ball of rock flying through the sky, flying through the, the universe at an unparalleled speed. And one day, and it's, it's constantly unraveling. There is entropy, constant unraveling. What does that mean? If you, if you look at your, the foundation of your life, as wealth or status. Do you know that wealth, status, money can't buy most of the things you absolutely need in your life. Money can't buy those things. You don't, money can't buy you health. Money can't buy you wisdom. Money can't buy you maturity. Money can't buy you safety, true safety. Money can't buy you certainty. Money can lie to you about certainty. Money can lie to you about your looks, beauty. Money can lie to you about family or love. But money can't buy these things in its certainty. Money can't buy you approval. Wealth can't buy you these things. If, you're, if the foundation of your life is family, just having a good family, uh, a family that just loves each other and is, and is tight and solid, you're eventually going to lose anybody that you ever loved. Do you know that? Let's face it. Are you going to live forever? And even if you did, nobody else around you will. You're going to lose these people, and they're going to lose you someday. That's the reality. Everything is falling into entropy. That sounds kind of morbid, right? But all this to say is that there are no foundations in our lives, no foundation in this world, and yet we're hooked. We're just desperate to rely on visible things as our foundation. So what does God do? Time and time again, you're going to face crises in your life in which to obey God means to lose something that you would otherwise build your significance on, that you would otherwise build your security on, and otherwise build your worth on. Look at Abraham. God says, I want you to obey. And he does. He does obey. 
He leaves, he settles down, he waits, he offers up his son. Why does he do it? Because he knew. There's faith. He knew there was certainty in his life. It didn't mean he didn't have questions. He had lots of questions. But he knew that the present reality is not real, and he's reasoned that much. And so he learns to shift from relying on visible things in the world as his foundation, but it doesn't happen without quaking. There is constant shaking, constant quaking. And we know that in the end, even though he offers up his son, his son doesn't die. There's constant quaking, constant shaking, reorienting. The foundations of your life have to shake in order for them to be reoriented to God and his word as truth. Then you have a foundation, one whose architect and builder is God. That's what this text says. It's lasting. It's ultimate security. You want ultimate security? You have to root yourself. You have to anchor yourself in one foundation that will always last. Safety. It's joyful. There's true peace. You know, when, you, when your foundations shake, and we all go through this at some point in our lives, when your foundations shake, it feels like death. Nothing that you ever have to give up will not shake you to the point where it feels like death when you give it. You know, when you repent of something, you're repenting of your pride. It's, it, your pride is damaged, and you have to repent of your pride. It's, these are bad things in our lives, and yet we cling to them. It's hard to, to give those things up. It, it feels like death. You know, spouses, when you get into an argument, there are times when you know your spouse is right. One half knows the other half is right. You just know, right? You just know. And yet, it's so hard for us to even acknowledge that. It's so hard. You know why? You're clinging to things that are visible in your life, and you don't want to give those things up. And you know that you should give these things up. You know it's bad for you, it's bad for the other person, it's bad for relationships around you, and yet it's so hard to give it up. You know why? Because you're clinging. You're clinging to what you see about yourself, and it may, even that's not always real. You understand that? Do you know that? Even that's not real. It feels like that. There's a quaking. Abraham shook. Abraham quaked. Abraham understands the heaviness. And yet God is gracious, and God is fatherly, to show us these things. It's going to break us. You know why? Because anything that you hook into has to break if it's not the foundation that is built on, the, on, on forever. It's got to break. It's got to shake and it's got to break. We know that to do that, to put God first, you always have to give something up. And yet God is fatherly and he's gracious because he's doing that to save you and to rescue you from those things. Do you see that? Faith teaches us to realize that. Now, um, as a child, many of you, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably understood this analogy at some point, that heart and throne analogy. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Um, it's a metaphor, I, I guess, uh, or kind of an illustration of your heart and what's going on in your heart. In your heart, there is a throne. And something is always sitting on that throne. From the moment that you're born, from the moment that you're conceived, something is sitting on that throne. And uh, if it's not God, if it's not Jesus sitting on that throne, something else is sitting on that throne, and whatever's sitting on the throne of your heart, right, is the king of your heart, is going to rule you. And so if, you're, uh, if you always have to be right, 
If you always have to prove yourself to be right, that's what's sitting on the throne of your heart. You want righteousness. You want approval. That's what's sitting on the throne. It's going to rule you. You're going to cower before some people, and you're going to be placating and appeasing and nice to some people, even though you don't really think that in your heart. And then you're going to be looking down and angry and confrontational with other people. That's what you're going to do, you see, because you believe you're right. One, one group of people you want to be right in front of, and other group of people you know you're right in front of, you see, and how you treat them and how you treat and how you view other, other people treating you. That's because that's the throne that's sitting, that's the king that's sitting on your heart. That's the heart and throne analogy. Who's sitting on the throne of your heart? That's your foundation. Is it wealth? Because, if that's, because of its wealth, it's going to rule you. You're going to be ruthless at times. And, you, and you're going to feel justified to do that because the world justifies it. No one outside of this room is going is to tell you that that's wrong. Right? Now, there may be some objective things that are wrong to do, but by and large, you're going to be able to justify that because the foundation of your heart, the way your, your life is set up is such a way that that which is sitting on the throne of your heart will justify you in doing anything that you do. But will you be justified? Will you be justified? To be a Christian, more than just saying that, hey, I go to church, I read the Bible, I meditate, I reflect, I even believe, more than even those things, It's a foundational shift in your heart to trust God in a way that empowers you to handle the brokenness in your life. To be a Christian means that my motivational center has shifted. That throne, the king that's sitting on the throne is no longer wealth or family, and you have to think very, very deep about yourself if you've never done that before. You have to dig very, very deep. You've got to ask yourself the five whys. Why do I do this? Well, because of this, because of A. Why do I do that? Because of it, why am I so hooked on that? Because you got to ask the five whys. You got to get down to the point where you can answer at the end that base root where there are no more why answers. That's the th- that's the king that's sitting on the throne. There is a foundational shift, and and uh, we're so afraid to make that shift. We're so afraid. You know why? Because the natural inclination of the heart is to not trust God. It takes a certain kind of person to obey God. You're disturbed. You've rationally reasoned it out. Yes, there's some thinking. There's reasoning. But to actually obey God genuinely because you've been so compelled in the heart to do so, it takes a certain kind of person. And you're not born with that. The natural inclination is to not do that. It's actually natural to go against that, right? Um, uh, And the reason why is because you're afraid that if you really lay down your life, unconditionally, and you've got to give up a lot of things when you do that. Everybody has to give up something when they're doing that. To really lay down your life unconditionally, there is this foundational fear. What if my life, what if I'm let down? Then God has let me down. That's one half. The other side of it will be, or what if I let God down? What if making that, I make this shift and then I fail? Then what happens, you see? Either God's going to let you down or you're going to let God down. That's the fear. And that's why faith is looking. We have reasoning, thinking. We have following, obeying. We have the shaking and the quaking. If you haven't shake, if you haven't quaked, then that personal relationship that you have with God has not gotten down to the core of what is really motivating you in your life. That's why faith is looking. In Hebrews chapter 11, <clears throat> it's often called the hall of faith. 
Um, and you see a lot of great people mentioned here, but these people are, are great not because they didn't have questions. Abraham had the same questions we have. He actually says in Genesis chapter 15, how can I know that you're good for it? He actually says that. And then he says, how can I know that I'm good for it? That's what he asks. Another way of saying that is, what if you fail me? What if I fail you? And God says, you know how God answers him? Genesis 15, I share this a lot. It's a very important, pivotal passage right in the beginning of the first book of the Bible. uh, We see this, which is why the Bible is all about grace. The Bible is all about grace, all about grace, all about God's graciousness, his love. Abraham is asking two foundational questions that prevent us from truly laying down our lives unconditionally before God. What if you fail me or what if I fail you? God says, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take some animals. I want you to cut them from head to toe in half, you know, right down the middle and lengthwise. And, and uh, you know, when you read this, you're not really sure what that means um, because, uh, but in ancient times, you know exactly what God is asking you to do um, and because that's what you did when you made a covenant with somebody, when you established a real contract, a life-binding contract with somebody. You took an animal, you cut them lengthwise from head to toe, you split them in half, put them on opposite sides of a road, and then you and your partner would walk through, you and the person that you were making a contract with, you are basically walking through the halves of those pieces. And really what you're doing is you're reciting the terms of your contract and you're reciting the stipulations, the oaths and the sanctions. What, they, what that means is I'm going to tell you what I'm gaining through this and what's going to happen if I don't live up to my end of the deal. May I be split in half. That's why you're walking through. May this happen to me. And you're literally walking as you are reciting the stipulations uh, of the contract. And both parties have to do it because both parties are bound to this contract. And that's what you did. Now, uh, Abraham totally understood what God is asking him to do. And he's thinking, oh, well, God's saying he's basically going to make a contract with me. That's what he's saying. By walking through the pieces, uh, God is saying, I promise that if I do not keep my word, may I be split apart, torn apart like these, like these animals here. You see this all throughout the ancient times in the Near East, not just in the Bible. There's a gentleman by the name of George Mendenhall. He's a PhD from Johns Hopkins University. He had some landmark research later on backed up by a theologian named Meredith Klein. Basically, he, they say that they discovered that what's going on in the Bible here is exactly went on in all Near, Near Eastern ancient contracts. They brought a connection. They said, well, actually, even the language now matches up with the language of these contracts. Every stipulation, in fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 19, the Ten Commandments, what do you think God is doing? Every component, the way even the words are stated, God is making a covenantal, life-binding contract with his people. That's what he's doing. It's not just a set of rules. He's making a love-binding contract. And, and basically what, what, what they're saying is that this is a covenant. God is making a covenant with Abraham. And so Abraham starts to cut these pieces, and he lays them on the side of the road. What happens? I've said this many times. Two remarkable things happen. The first is God appears. We call it a theophanic representation of God. He literally appears in the context of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, and he blazes between the pieces. So what he's saying, and as he's doing it, he says, I promise this, and I promise that. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm putting my life on the line. May I be torn apart like these animals if I do not live up to the stipulations of what I'm promising you, Abraham. That's what he's saying. I will be your God. 
That's what he says. The second thing we see here, God never asks Abraham to walk in between the pieces. And, and through this, Abraham realizes what God is saying. What God is saying on one hand, if I don't live up to my end, if I'm not faithful to you ever, to gener- he says, to you and generations after you, for all time, if I'm not faithful to you, I will pay the price. I will pay the penalty. May I be torn to pieces like these animals. But if you don't keep up your end, I'm not going to have you walk through. May I pay the penalty. May I pay the price. Only me. God promises to pay because only he can live up to his end of the promise. When you live up to your end of the promise and the other person does not live up to their end of the promise, there's a sense of superiority that kind of happens. There's a gap. And there's a sense of superiority that you feel towards this person because you lived up to it. And you can, you can rip into these people, right? That's what we do. In fact, that's probably where we get the phrase ripping into these people. You're tearing them apart, right? But the thing is, what God's saying here is, I will not have you walk through because you can't. I know you can't. I know you can't do it. I'm never going to give up on you. I'm going to put my name on that to show you that I will never give up on you. That's my promise. Abraham says, how can I know? How can I know this? God makes a promise. He says, let me be torn apart if I don't live up to my end of the promise. What's our evidence? Abraham had a visual representation of animals being torn apart so that he can trust that God will be faithful. What do we see? What evidence do we have? In John chapter 8, Jesus Christ says, you want to know how you know? Abram wasn't just doing that and saying, hey, it's just for me, just for my family. Abram was looking to me. That's what he says. In other words, he wasn't just relying on what was visible, what the animals that he saw split apart. That wasn't going to be enough. He knows that for all time, he knew that wasn't going to be enough. By faith, that's why it says by faith, there was a promise He trusted in that promise, but he was looking ahead. He was looking ahead to what? In verse 13, these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, but they welcomed them from afar. That's what it says. In other words, Abram had power and strength because God's presence, he showed up. And his mere promise, his mere assurance, his mere assurance, the mere anticipation was enough. And, and he knew that then he was secure. Jesus Christ had ultimate security. Jesus Christ lived in the Father's house. Jesus Christ had the comfort of living in the bosom of the Father in heaven. That means that he had wealth, ultimate wealth. That means he had security, ultimate security. That means he had love, ultimate love. He had ultimate status. But in a sense, God was saying to Jesus, we call this the covenant of redemption. He was making, establishing a covenant with Jesus. Mainly what he was saying was, if these people are to be redeemed, you know what the word redeemed means? Redeemed means somebody has to pay. You're deeming it again, right? You're, re, uh, to claim, you're claiming, in order to claim these people when they've been lost to you, a ransom has to be paid. Somebody has to pay. 
you actually have to pay the price, right? Mainly what he says is, if these people are to be redeemed, son, you have to pay. You have to die. For them to be saved, you have to be dead. You have to pay the price. And so that means that Jesus Christ has to be torn apart. If these people are to be in, then Jesus, you have to be out. If these people are to live, then Jesus, you have to die. If these people are to be accepted, then Jesus, you have to be forsaken. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why? The imperishable is becoming vulnerable on the cross. Why? So that the vulnerable, the broken, can become imperishable. You see that? Jesus heard the ultimate call away from the ultimate security. And in Gethsemane, when he was praying to the Father, saying, if it is your will, do not let this cup of wrath, do not let me drink this cup. He was quaking. He experienced the ultimate shaking. He experienced the ultimate quaking. He journeyed, he left the ultimate comfort and journeyed into the ultimate abyss of uncertainty and infinite suffering on the cross. And on the cross, there was a real earthquake. There was an earthquake. There was a real quaking. But when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying? My God, he said, my foundation. This is the only lasting foundation, and it has left me. Now I'm really quaking. Now, imagine him, he's on the cross. The wrath of God is just pouring out on him on the cross, and he's got no foundation. He's quaking. The, he's saying, my body is being torn asunder. My soul, ripped apart from God, is being torn apart. And do you think that God just looked at that and said, oh, that's pretty cool? Can you imagine being separated from your one and only son? God in his infinite love, separated from his son in an infinite capacity. Truly God understands suffering. Truly God understands loss. Do you see that? And yet, do you know, Jesus obeyed to the end. Jesus obeyed fully. Jesus trusted fully. He said, my God, my God. He didn't say, why are you doing this to me? My God, my God, he said. He still trusted. And he journeyed to places that you could never go, that you would never go on your own. He did it for you. The gospel shows the faithfulness, the love, the faith, of Jesus, it was more than just some sort of thinking and rational thought, right? His obedience was more than just a rational thing. There's nothing more deeply personal than the Trinity coming together. And yet, in his love for, the, for his Father, deeply personal, he says, my God has forsaken me. Now my God has become impersonal to me. It shaped, and yet, it shaped his trust. His faith shaped his trust all the way to the point of death. And he died for us. He died for you. Do you see that? Jesus Christ says, I got, I'd lost my security. I was crushed. I was torn to pieces. So that we have a visible representation. Something that we can say is our evidence that God is for us, that God is with us. God is walking with us. He is present and that he will be faithful to the end, even in the midst of your suffering. Will that not give you confidence? I mean, that's going to give you real confidence because that is a foundation, a lasting foundation, a lasting hope. Do you see that? 
He was crushed for us. He was torn to pieces for us. So when he asks you to get out of your security zone, so when he asks you to make some sort of sacrifice, to offer up something, do you think he's doing that to hurt you? Do you think he's doing that to hurt you? He's doing that to save you. He's doing that to rescue you from the things that are actually not lasting and that you're hooked into. Do you see that? There's going to be a quaking. There's going to be a shaking. But he experienced shaking and quaking to one, the only thing that was lasting so that you could have that, that which is lasting. Do you see that? Put him first. When Jesus Christ asks you to sacrifice something that is so important to you, you think it's so important to you, you think it's going to save you. You know why? Because it's sitting on the throne of your heart. When he says, I want you to offer those things up. Jesus Christ, his obedience crushed him so that your obedience will make you. Do you get that? It will make you imperishable. Do you get that? You got to think it out. You got to hear the call. You got to follow. Life is not easy. You got to follow. It's going to shake you. It's going to quake you. If it hasn't shaken you, if it hasn't quake, quaked you, then, oh, then, then you haven't truly trusted yet. You haven't. Maybe that means, uh, you know, you got to leave a certain lifestyle. Oh, it's going to feel like death to do that. Maybe uh, it's gonna, it's gonna, it means that you've got to settle down for once in the church and commit to the church. Oh, it's going to feel like death to do that. Maybe that means you need to give. Nothing feels like death than giving to people who don't deserve. Oh, but that's a quaking, that's a shaking. Maybe it means you have to give up something that's sitting on the throne of your heart. God is doing this to make you. That's how you live a big life. To live a big life, you have to be hooked in something far bigger than what you can conceive on your own. What you're conceiving on your own is still small, too small. Maybe you've got to let go of your guilt. Oh, we want to cling on to our guilt. Maybe you've got to let go of your pride. Gotta, we love to cling to our pride. Maybe you've got to let go of some aspects of your reputation. Maybe you've got to let go of your rights, what you feel you're entitled to. That's how you become great. Will you trust? Because if you trust, if you look to the visible representation, Jesus Christ on the cross, that will shape you, that will change you, and that will give you. Only a God that can do that is a God that can give you joy and peace for all time. Let's pray.